Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. Let's talk about referral programs. They were all the rage when growth hacking was getting popular, but have you ever thought about creating a referral program for your newsletter? There's a newsletter called Influence Weekly, and after they implemented a referral program, it started to grow 50% faster. In some weeks, more than 80% of new subscribers came from the referral program. And it's all thanks to Sparkloop, the referral tool specifically built for newsletters. It takes five minutes to set up and has a generous 30-day trial. Check them out at sparkloop.app EIM. You can find the link in the show notes and tell them Corey sent you. On the show today is Ashley Levesque, who is the Director of Marketing for Demio, a leading webinar platform. She was also previously a marketer at Soft Robotics, a robotics manufacturer. I wanted to bring Ashley on because, well, it's not every day you get to talk to someone who's done marketing in the robotics industry, let alone someone who's done it actually really, really well. She also doesn't come from a traditional marketing background. She's a theater kid, a waitress, an executive assistant, and then found her way into marketing. Though, as you'll hear, there's actually a very consistent theme throughout her career. You'll hear about how you can bring life and humor to boring industries like robotics and why actually there's no such thing as a boring industry, how they leveraged channel sales to extend their marketing far beyond themselves, and what it means to be a challenger brand in an old established industry. All right, Ashley, to start out, I would love to know, did you ever think that you'd be marketing software for a living? Uh, no, no, definitely not. Um, you know, if you had asked me when I was five, I would have just said that I was going to be Whitney Houston. Like that was all that I really wanted to be when I was little. I didn't even really know that you could sing or act professionally. I just knew that like Whitney Houston, whatever she was doing was what I really wanted to do. So no, this is like miles away from what I thought, but it's great. I mean, I love it. I think it's it's super fun. Yeah. Maybe more fun even than being with Houston. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was reading up on your on your background. I know that you spent, um, you know, before you were a marketer, and as you know, no one is born a marketer, right? And so uh, you spent some mm -hmm. time doing odd jobs. You were in, you also have a really strong background in musical theater, uh, waiting tables, all the above. Like, what what do you feel like you took away from some of those? roles and experiences that help you with marketing today? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think, uh, so I was, I was raised like a theater kid. Um, you know, I, I have a bachelor's in, uh, music and theater and I have a master's in musical theater. And I spent a lot of time learning how to be an actress, which really is just learning how to be a good storyteller. And I think, mm -hmm. One of the things that I that I learned from being on stage that I that I honestly think like marketers could learn from like going the other way is we used to always say, um, you know, when we're doing a show that the audience is like another actor on stage with us. Right. They are a part of our they're a part of our show. And when they are not a part of our show, you are really just working for yourself. You know, it's just like you and your friends getting together, doing doing art, doing work together. Um, but it, it it's not as serving for a, a community at large if the audience isn't a part of it. And so part of my job as an actress is 
first and foremost, to tell my story, right? I have a story to share and I'm playing a part of that story. And the second part of that is to be mindful simultaneously that I'm sharing the story with a live party. And so my job is as skillfully as possible to adapt and respond to them as well, just like I'm adapting and responding to the people on stage with me. So I begin to learn immediately if my audience is engaged with what I'm doing, if they like me, if they don't like me. And this is all both helpful and very detrimental to an actor, right? To like, to be on stage five minutes into like a nine hour show and be like, this audience hates me and I have eight hours left to go. But the point is that I need to learn how to adapt to what they are also giving me, right? So I, I need to pause as they are laughing or clapping, right? I need to, I need to note if, if they are feeling some of what I'm putting down. I don't know if you've ever been part of an audience before, but as an audience member, I've had moments in an audience where I'm like gasping, you know, or I'm crying or I'm like really invested in this. And so I think sometimes what happens with marketers is we get so, and I am simultaneously guilty of this, we get so excited about our own idea of what our audience is going to engage with or think is great or what brand, what our brand is that we just kind of serve ourselves. You know, we do this in a vacuum and it doesn't actually serve them because we're not including them in the conversation and we're not able to adapt to them when they adapt. Like, COVID couldn't be a better example of needing to really pay attention and, and say, our, these pain points are changing. Like our, our audience's needs are changing and we need to pay attention to that. If we are continuing to s tell the same story in the face of them, you know, if I'm continuing to be on stage doing joke after joke after joke and my audience is crying, like this is an embarrassing moment for all of us. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's probably the biggest takeaway the biggest connection that I really think makes, I mean, it's my pathway from acting to marketing feels so fluid to me. It feels the same really. Um, and, and I, I would, I would urge other, you know, other marketers to look at that. The other, the other big piece of course with, um, with theater is empathy, right. And is like the ability to actually know and depend on, your emotions and your um, awareness around your emotions to guide your experience. So there's a there's a self discipline in theater training that that really um, requires your connection to yourself in a way that a lot of other business skill sets don't. Um, not only do they not you know, require that it's not a, it's not a part of your daily, you know, uh, work, but it's, it's, it's actually in a lot of businesses kind of looked down on, you know, like feelings and, um, you know, uh, per personal growth. That's not really always a place there, there isn't space held for that in an organizational setting. But as a theater kid, you're literally like, I was graded on that, you know, like that was part of what showed, my ability to be a great actress was my ability to use my experiences and my uh, my range 
and and ability to access that range of emotion to do some to tell a great story. So if you're if you have the story without the empathy, if you have the story without the 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 reason that the story matters, you're really losing an opportunity. So those are the two things that I I really take from my time doing that. And also the reason that I just kind of jump. It's just like under one umbrella for me. It's like all the same thing. Like acting and marketing is all the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I love that. And I it, I would assume that there's also a piece there where once you've been on stage or once you've uh, done your first show or you've done multiple shows, that kind of feels like maybe a lot of other things in life are not as scary. Because if you can go on stage and perform or act or nail a scene, then it's like, oh, what is this software? I can market it or I can figure out the story for it. <laughs> it's not, not a big deal anymore. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely an element to that. I, I definitely am usually like the token person, even outside of marketing, who's like doing the webinars or like public speaking, just because, you know, I have a personality for that. I've been trained in that. And it's one of the it's one of the recommendations that I make to other companies, especially companies that maybe don't have a marketing team or don't have like a ton of marketing resources is to really think about like who in their organization is best served to communicate their story. And sometimes it's not it's not your marketers, which is like maybe a problem. Um, you know, sometimes it's not your salespeople, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's your product people or who who's the person who gets most excited about the opportunity to share that story? You can train them on what the story is, right? And you can certainly train people like actors on how to access that that kind of um, ability to connect and communicate with people. That is certainly trainable as well. But depending on what it is that you want to take the time to train and, and what it is that you have the expertise to train, most companies can train you on how to be a subject matter expert mm. uh, easier than they can train you on how to be an effective communicator um, and build relationships with people. Uh, unfortunately, I think. And so I would, I always encourage people to like, find your person in your company who, who you think would be great in front of people and train them and, uh, you know, give them access to opportunities like that because they will end up being an incredible ambassador for your company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, uh, one of my sort of like theses in SAS mm -hmm. is that, uh, and, and also just beyond SAS is that marketing is becoming more and more mm -hmm. sort of cross-departmental and um, cross-functional and it's everyone sort of has a role in marketing and uh, even Heaton Shah who I was speaking with earlier he said everyone is a marketer in their job whether they have it in their job title or not just because like I said it could be that the best person to go up and speak about something is uh, a product engineer or the best person to get this webinar is a customer success manager or the best person to um, you know talk about the uh, the next I don't know the next product launch or um, feature announcement is the founder because they're the most enthusiastic, the most excited, the most well-qualified to talk about it. So it's not just the marketer's job to sort of take it all on and say, okay, this is all of my stuff now, but it's in fact to enable them instead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, you also mentioned something in one of your articles. Uh, you said um, something about basically waiting tables is where you learned everything relevant, um, by the way. Could you elaborate on, on sort of the context of that and what you meant by that? Yeah. Um, so 
Waiting tables was my first job ever, um, as was a lot of people's, I think. And I started waiting tables at a really small like pizza shop in my small town when I was in high school. And I actually continued to wait tables for the next like 10 years or so, on and off through college and then on and off through graduate school and then full time after graduate school trying to find work. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned there when it comes to uh, how you engage with other people um, and specifically how you observe other people. So I think servers and uh, people, restaurant staff in general, are can can have a tendency to not be treated super well. You know, they um, it's a lot of barking orders. It's a lot of expectations. It's it's not paid very well. Um, I remember I remember my some of my first experiences waiting tables were I was just watching people get fired left and right. Like we would have a bad night, and a server would come back into the kitchen to like pick up a pizza to bring to the next table. And my boss would be like, you're fired, you're done, just pack up and go home for the night. And I was like, <laughs> you know, there's, yeah, it was, it was scary. Um, but I think one of the things that I, that I learned watching one of the older uh, servers, she was, she'd been with this pizza place for, you know, since its opening and she kind of like, came in and out at her at her leisure and she got the best shifts and everybody loved her. One of the things that I realized watching her was she would she first of all she made more money than anybody else at the company and it was because she knew her customers in and out. She she would preempt them with another beer before they asked for a beer, but she knew they wanted a beer. It wasn't it wasn't presumptuous. It was she was reading them well. And when I watched her, I wasn't seeing her watch them. You know, she just was. I, I don't know how to how to describe it. She just knew them really well. And over time, as that relationship became stronger, of course, they'd come in and ask only for her. They'd come to that restaurant specifically because she, they knew she was working. Um, their, you know, they'd bring their friends, which meant that their bill got bigger and her tip got bigger and everyone's having more drinks. And it just became this like self-fulfilling prophecy almost of success. Mm. And I, I learned a lot about just watching people's behavior, recognizing that, that people want different things. This is like very basic. I even saying it out loud sounds kind of silly, yeah. but, um, there's, there's something there's something authentic and genuine about meeting people where they are. And there's nothing, there's no place like that than like the local pizza right. shop, you know, like people are coming in and they only have enough money for this pizza. And it's like how they spend their Friday nights as a family. They've had a shitty week. They, they're, they're not making any money, but they have one Friday night pizza together as a family. My job is not to upsell them beer and like big buckets of, you know, whatever it's, it's, I'm there to like serve this moment for them. And there are other people that come in like just to see this waitress, right? And they're bringing their friends and they're they're partying and, and they're excited about her, you know, anticipating their needs. And that's, you have to know, first of all, that these people are different and be, be able to observe how uh, noting their differences actually enables you to better serve their needs. Mm. 
That's interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. I was, I knew that there was something sort of to pull out there, but I'm, I'm glad that you shared that. Uh, <laughs> I got there eventually. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. It, it's fantastic. Um, that's, again, part of the whole show is like, what are the things we can learn outside of marketing where it's sort of, you know, you have your portfolios and your your websites and your emails and like, what are the, the psychological factors and what are the, the service yeah. factors and what are the things that you can take to really understand how to better serve your customers and be a better marketer. Um, and eventually you landed in marketing, but it was sort of an unconventional way as well. Like what actually enabled you to break into marketing um, and, and basically move from not marketer to marketer? Yeah. So this is great. So I was, um, I just graduated from graduate school with a master's in musical theater. And I was sort of doing the like, hmm, what, what is that? <laughs> what does that look yeah. like professionally? Um, and I landed a job at a private equity firm as sort of a glorified receptionist. I was sitting at the front desk. Um, I was helping to answer phones. I was sort of the face of this pretty prominent um you know, well-established private equity firm, which is a very, you know, elevated sort of business to, to find yourself in for your first professional office kind of job. Um, and I was there about a year. And the way that the firm was organized is there, there was me, you know, as this kind of glorified receptionist. And then there were all of these investment professionals of varying levels from like associate all the way to managing partner. And they were all on teams segmented by industries. So there was like the education team and there's the healthcare team or whatever. And each team had one executive assistant that served that whole team. So one EA would serve, you know, five to seven really busy, high profile sort of investment professionals. And over the course of my year, uh, kind of answering phones and doing some of that basic like office kind of stuff, and watching those EAs, I was like, I want to do that. You know, I don't even, I don't even really know. I didn't really know at the time, like what their job responsibility really was, you know, cause I didn't, I didn't have any experience being an EA obviously, but I knew that they had more responsibility than I did. I knew that their work felt more impactful to the organization than mine did. You know, I felt a little bit more replaceable than they did. And, uh, I was like, maybe that equals fulfillment in some way, or maybe at the very least it equals like a challenging next step. And so I went to uh, my director of administration, who was my boss at the time and after about a year, and I was like, I, I wanna like be an EA, like that's my next you know, step here. And she was like, I'm really sorry, but like, that's not how this progression works. Like our EAs are sourced externally. They have years and years and years of experience before we hire them. Uh, you, you know, you can't really make the move from receptionist to managing a managing partner at this firm. And I was like, okay. Um, and then literally like three days later, one of those EAs got fired. Oh, wow. And so my director of administration came like walking back to my desk and she was like, okay, look, do not get your hopes up because you cannot have this job, but we do have this like empty vacancy and we just need a body to put in there to answer phones so that like there's someone visible in that seat. So do you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, and so I sat back there again, having no, like 
idea of what the expectations were, having no understanding of how to do this job, but just really feeling like it was something I could learn. I know that I'm scrappy. I know that I'm eager to be impactful. And, and I also truly believe that anything can be taught. Anything can be taught to anybody if they have the resources accessible to them and the desire to learn it. And so for three months, I was in this like interim trial period where I was sitting at this desk while they literally were like parading candidates in front of me for this job. So I'm like competing with these other people and I'm just like soaking it in. I'm asking a ton of questions. I'm leaning on the other EAs to help me. I'm reading everything that I can read. I'm feeling nervous because the girl that literally just sat here was fired. So I have no idea, but like, I don't have anything to lose at that point. I know I'm not going to be a receptionist forever. So eventually, you know, I, long story short, maybe not short at this point, um, I was, you know, uh, formally hired and I stayed there for five years and I totally loved it. And after five years, I, I looked around and I was like, okay, we're in the same, we're in the same spot here where. I, I certainly am not going to go from executive assistant to investment professional. That's like not the progression. And that's not really what I'm interested in. So I was like, maybe I, you know, I was looking for a, a culture shift for sure. I wanted to move out of sort of the financial uh, kind of stuffy, a little bit restricting kind of culture. And I wanted to move into something a little bit more experimental and uh, risk-taking. And I wanted to move somewhere that I felt like I could grow. So I that's how I got to Soft Robotics. And I was hired as an executive assistant for the CEO there. I was employee number 10. So I was you know, I was really at the front of this organization's pathway to building out what the company was going to look like. And as with all, you know, startups, at some point, my CEO turned to me and he was like, okay, we need a marketing function. Like, do you have any idea how to do that? And I was like, no. And he was like, well, do you want to figure it out? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and it was the exact same situation. I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew that I really wanted to learn. And he gave me the opportunity to do so. He provided me with the support and the resources and the bandwidth to, to say, okay, go figure this out and come back to me. And so I did that. I, I kind of like sat, sat in my seat and, you know, I'm scouring all these resources and I'm teaching myself as I'm applying it, which is like startups are such a beautiful laboratory for being able to like quickly learn, quickly apply and, and go back and forth. And it was such a great way for me to uh, learn as I was building this company. And then, you know, four years later, I was there again and I was like, I'm ready for my next thing. And so this is another example where the, the, the resume looks kind of strange, and, but it actually feels like super integrated for me. It feels super um, linear almost that everything just builds on itself. It's not the skills so much that matter because again, I just think anyone can learn to do anything. It's just that I was given great opportunities to try something new and that I had a desire to do that. And so I just kept saying yes. And I think this is really important, which is I talk to a lot of people who deal with imposter syndrome and I deal with this a lot too. And the, the practice, the consistent practice that I've taken in saying yes to something 
when I don't know how to do it is a really powerful way to move through imposter syndrome. If you have a community of colleagues or leadership team, or even just friends or a community who is giving you an opportunity and space and support to say, go try this thing, there, there's nothing more powerful to combat the negativity than, than by actively moving against the notion that it has to be perfect first mm. before you can go. You just have to go. And I think that served me well, particularly in startups where, you know, the, the, the mantra for most is like, go fast. Right. And, you know, my, in, in some instances, like it's my CEO used to say, it's, it's better to ship it today, like half done than to ship it tomorrow. Perfect. Because there is no such thing as perfect, but we continue to think that there is. And if we keep waiting for that, we're going to lose the window of opportunity that we've been allotted. So, so I'm a big proponent of just like saying yes and figuring it out later. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's honestly very admirable because not everyone would have, um, the drive and ambition, but also, uh, the courage to go and try these things. I mean, especially it was, it was sort of shocking for me to hear that, you know, going from, executive assistant to the CEO. And he's like, Hey, would you, you know, want to try this whole marketing thing? I like having never done any marketing before that to me in a startup would be incredibly scary of like, wait, you want me to, and what does success look like? And how am I going to do this? And you know, how do I know what to do? But you had the psychological safety and the bravery to take it on yourself. Totally. And I think there are some, you know, there's certainly some transferable skills that I think show up again, I think these can be taught, but I think they show up in a recognizable way and potentially did for my CEO where he saw that I'm organized, right? That I can manage time well, that I know how to develop relationships, that I, um, you know, am building a sense of trust with uh, other people in my organization. And so some of these become relevant when it comes time to, you know, start new projects or develop new campaigns or start a marketing function or, or whatever. But I think he knew that uh, if I could figure out the skill, the marketing skills part, that I would have the leadership skills needed to eventually hire people underneath me, which is what I did, you know, get, get buy-in from other leadership, get buy-in with the sales team, develop an alignment there drive toward shared goals, you know, all of that stuff that is also really important to be a marketing leader um, alongside like, am I a good writer? Do I know how to build strategy? Like all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think there, that in some ways, some of that is just kind of foundational. Mm -hmm. So not only did you start the marketing function at a startup, but it was a robotics startup and it's not every day that you talk to someone who markets robots or ro robotic products or even robotic software. Um, so how was marketing in the robotics industry different than other industries that you've been in or sort of other experiences you've had with marketing? Oh man. So the robotics industry is like so amazing and simultaneously so frustrating. And I, I didn't have any experience in robotics prior to coming to soft robotics. So everything that I learned was by like, again, digging into these people, like as soon as I got there. So I spent a lot of time, a lot of time with them. Um, you know, what's, what's different for sure is that there is a 
you know, robotics are really expensive. These systems are huge capital expenses and the sales cycles are super, super long. There's a ton of different people involved. Um, but what's, what's different apart from that is that the ad adoption is so slow. Um, there is, there is such weariness to adopt new technology in that industry because that industry grew up in like 1970s Ford automobile era and is really still stuck in that mindset um, where these are the things that we automate. This, this is what automation looks like. This is what robots look like. And so even though that industry is growing exponentially, I mean, the, 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 in the startup that I was working at, Soft Robotics, is an incredible challenger brand in this market where they are developing robotic solutions to automate things that have never been automated before. This is, I mean, working for something like that, I'm getting excited again just thinking about it. Working for a company like that, that is really challenging the way the entire industry thinks about its industry is so exciting. And when you when you find those other people in the industry and start to kind of see them shift their mindset and also get excited and become evangelists, not only for our company, but for like this new revolution, this like wave of newness that's coming in this industry, it's incredibly exciting. And then you continually get met with maybe next quarter or like maybe next year because it's so expensive and because there are so many pieces of this puzzle that actually make up what a robotic system looks like, right? There's a robot. There's a gripper that has to actually pick something up. There's safety. There's all there's conveyors. There's all these things and they all have to come together at the right time. So it can be kind of a frustrating, you know, sales process. But but what an incredible exciting time to be in that in that industry. I mean, it is literally it is literally changing the way that we think about industrial automation mm. for sure. You use that word uh, challenger brands. Well, like what exactly does that mean? Is it sort of like, you know, you mentioned this wave of maybe uh, or a revolution of sort of new startups or um, people disrupting incumbents. Um, is, are, are, what exactly does it mean to be a challenger brand? Yeah, I think about it like sort of a, a category creator. Mm. So soft robotics, for example, designs robotic solutions that automate industries that aren't being automated today. So the industries aren't new, right? But the the way that we're uh, the way that we're recommending they be automated is new. And so we're coming into the space saying, not only can you automate cars, which is what we've been automating forever and ever, but you can actually automate food processing and packaging. You can automate retail returns and processing. You can automate consumer goods. Oh, and by the way, these are the categories that we actually need now because of the economics of our country and the birth rate and people aren't picking things out of the field anymore and all this stuff. We, this, is, this is the stuff we need and here it is kind of on a silver platter for you. Um, coming into a risk averse industry with that kind of messaging is 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 a challenger brand we're trying to create a new pathway of you know driving the mindset toward uh thinking thinking about automation differently mm. so it's introducing ourselves as a new category while simultaneously trying to introduce our product as 
the only, you know, at the time that we came on the market, we were the only ones automating those industries. Now, Soft Robotics has some competitors on the market, which certainly validates our position, in, you know, in the space. But at the time, everyone was like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean you want to automate food? Like, that's crazy. You, we can't we can't automate food. Yeah. Um, and then it became, oh, we have to automate food. Um, how are we going to do it? And we were already there. So that was really, really powerful for us, especially during COVID when we start to have conversations about, you know, the meat, the meat plants shutting down because of contamination and people coming in that were sick from COVID and, um, you know, thinking about contactless processing um, became really attractive to consumers, you know, this year for sure. Prior to COVID, I assume that, you know, creating a new category and being a challenger brand where you're sort of paving the way for uh, a new way of doing things involves a lot of education, a lot of uh, sort of evangelizing in a way of you're sort of trying to teach people to do things, something differently or um, uh, a new way to think about things. So what does marketing look like for a company like Soft Robotics where uh, one, it's in a very sort of industrial uh, industry, but also where you're paving a new way for a new category and a new way of thinking? It looks like the balance of respecting that if you if you fly too far off the handle, you're not going to gain the trust of the industry because these are risk averse people and you can't educate them if you if you don't attract them first. And also needing to show up in a different way. So my, my goal at Soft Robotics, especially um, once we kind of implanted ourselves in the market was to attract. So I wanted to use messaging that got their attention long enough for me to educate them because pumping out educational content is useless if, if I don't have the trust of my industry and audience that they're going to consume it. And that's one of the biggest mistakes that I think we can make early on is just assuming that people are going to buy into what we're putting out. And as a challenger brand, I think especially you really need to gain that trust first. So we, uh, you know, we made sure we were at the major trade shows that our industry partners were at. We made sure that we were doing partnerships with with the big boys in the industry so that we started to get some brand validation. Um, as with all industries, uh, certainly in that or all um, companies in that space in particular, case studies became really difficult for us because um, a lot of companies saw us as their competitive advantage and they didn't want their competition to know they were using us yeah. to get the results that they were getting. And so we had to find other ways to get that validation. And so um, partnerships was a big part of that and and messaging in a different way. The other thing that 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 became really clear early on too was we did need to remember even as a fairly stuffy risk averse and industry that as the baby boomers are retiring and some of that um you know static kind of old school way of thinking might be retiring with them that some of the younger newer generation of engineers who are actually using this product they're coming in with you know they're searching for stuff on google the way that the rest of the world is searching for stuff on google right. so we were one of the first one of the first people in our industry who really really got into like 
blog content and email newsletters and YouTube and videos and really showing up in a way that the rest of our industry were still like just doing trade shows. They're just going to trade shows twice a year, getting their leads, giving them to sales and calling it done. Mm. We started to develop more of an inbound methodology sure that if we could gain the attention of these new engineers, that they would be able to make a case for soft robotics. And, and that's exactly what we found. And we were even able to like delight them a little bit. You know, we made videos that were interesting to them. We used humor, we used emojis, like things that this industry was like, absolutely not, blah, blah, blah. But again, this goes back to our conversation around adapting to your audience and listening to your audience. Like as the industry is changing, as people are retiring and new people are coming in, you have to be mindful of who you're actually talking to and um, what the needs are. So co when, when COVID happened and even before COVID happened, there became some economic, you know, there came to light some economic shifts that really required these specific industries to be automated in order to keep up with demand. And so we, we have to address those challenges for our customers and say, hey, look, your competitors are getting to market in a way that you're not, and it's just because they're automating. So let's have a conversation. And that is a much more um, you know, personal and, and real way to, to enter into that market than just trade shows Yeah, all the time. Yeah, and I think the, um, the sort of competitive advantage is such an, such an interesting aspect. It's like there are certain industries where People don't want to talk about what they're using and what's working because otherwise if they give their secrets out then they sort of you lose that advantage right and then there are other uh industries where you want to share everything because it's kind of a you know rising tide lifts all boats and um they're their peers or their friends or other people in the industry and so you have to figure out you know are you going to more uh sort of use fomo and social proof in the way of um, here's what all of your peers doing, or here's what all of your competitors are doing. And that's a, such an interesting kind of balance you have to make depending on what industry you're in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where, you know, having good partnerships really comes into play too. Um, at Soft Robotics, we, in my last year or so there, we developed like a formal reseller program, value added reseller program, mm -hmm. where um, I took a heavy hand on the marketing side and making sure that from an education and enablement standpoint, these resellers were ambassadors of our technology because that was going to be how they sold it. This is not a technology that is like off the shelf, just kind of put it up on the website and, and click here to add to your cart. Right. This requires um, education and implementation and onboarding and training and when we built out that go-to-market strategy, it came with marketing expectations. I had quarterly calls with every single partner. I had expectations on how many events they were doing on behalf of Soft Robotics. I, I spent a lot of time putting together training programs and images and videos for them to use. I really became sort of their marketing department because I knew that that would serve us in the, in the long run. And and it did, you know, it really showed that these high touch points that we were doing with them kept us top of mind when they were potentially selling us alongside competitive products, right? The fact that they knew me and, and I'm doing a 
quarterly webinar with them about new product updates and I'm excited and I'm here's some new pictures for you and here's a new battle card for you. They, they just know me. And I think that in the same way that that serves sales relationships, certainly, you know, to your point before about how a lot of these departments are crossing each other, it absolutely served our entire strategy um, by having a strong marketing presence. And I think um, all marketers who are developing or all, all go-to-market departments who are developing partnership strategies should absolutely make sure that their marketing teams are part of that from the development stage, yeah. like from the what are the KPIs that we're going to look at to help us understand if this partner is a good partner for us? Not only revenue, but also marketing. And what does that mean for, for both of us? Well, you know, channel marketing and uh, reseller, sort of however you want to categorize it, isn't something that you hear about super often, at least not in, in my world. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of fascinated to hear, like, is it, was that something that emerged for you guys or was that something that you strategically kind of picked and said, Hey, this is going to be sort of the next channel for us or a great opportunity. Was it something that sort of just evolved over time? Um, or how did that come to be such a big part of the marketing? So the, the idea of value added resellers in that industry is super common. So I think it was only a matter of time, but before our company got there. And so Soft Robotics was formed in 2013, and we formally launched that prog program in 2019, I think. So, um, you know, we, we were selling direct prior to then and wanted to get more feet on the ground, really, and expand, um, you know, our brand in a way that also got us into all of these other companies that were evangelizing Soft Robotics on our behalf. Um, so I think it was only a matter of time, but but what happened was the leadership team came to our channel director and myself and said, we know that this is going to be a good strategy for us. Um, it's, it's very clear how this could potentially impact our revenue, right? By having more people on the ground and more people selling stuff. Um, but can you two work together to figure out exactly how to execute this? And so... Again, I think this was an opportunity where I'd never built a channel marketing program before. Um, but I knew, you know, again, I knew this audience pretty well at this point. Um, I knew our value propositions really well. I knew what we were able to do for not only our end users, but our partners. I knew how this could serve them and level up their marketing. Um, and so we built it together. And you know, the other interesting thing about this industry is this is still an industry to some degree that is still evaluating how marketing can serve them. This is not an industry where every single one of these companies has marketing departments. This is still an industry of like, you know, cold calls from sales, trade shows and selling. And that's that's kind of right. it. And so what we were able to also do for some of our resellers was introduce the uh, concept that marketing is actually a driver of revenue. And if you can implement at least some of our strategy that I'm sharing with you and educating you on, um, you're going to be uh, you know, above the fold in driving revenue and uh, driving awareness to your brand. And you don't, you know, some of them went on to then develop marketing departments, you know, or, or, or marketing uh, functions. And some of them were doing that before as well. That certainly isn't, solely attributed to us.
but there there's some there's a barrier there for sure that's very different than it is like in the SaaS world where uh you know everyone recognizes kind of the the value of the the revenue group you know or starting to think about this cohesive sort of sales and customer service and marketing and operations sort of driving together not not the case there for sure yeah that's fascinating what um you mentioned a couple of bits before but for you and your perspective on building a successful channel marketing kind of program what do you think is the difference between a successful program and an unsuccessful channel marketing program um, so I would definitely say uh, starting at the beginning of the program is going to make you most successful. So actually developing the partnership program with marketing at the beginning so that uh, marketing is influencing from the gate. I think sometimes it's it's really hard to continue to validate marketing's ability to drive revenue if if they're continually showing up second or third or fourth in line. And in order to get them to the front of the line, you have to include them in the strategy. So it's not just here's our partner strategy, marketing, go do your piece. It's actually marketing, how can this strategy serve us and how can it serve them with your department? And that that was huge. That that in, that enabled us to develop clear uh, profiles and expectations at the front end for our partners that included marketing. So being able to say, you know, this is what it means for you to be a good partner for us. Here are our expectations and they include marketing things. Mm. And we are going to have quarterly business reviews with you that include the marketing team. And I'm going to talk with you about opportunities that I see where we can leverage uh, uh, events or social media or co-promoting a webinar together or a newsletter edition together uh, in order to elevate your brand and bring in revenue for you, which brings in revenue for us. So that's the biggest piece is just, just bring them in at the front end instead of bringing them in later on, which I think is really true of anything. I think about this even with, you know, I, I think about this a lot with culture, which feels like a, a tangent maybe, but but feels like right on for me here, which is like, you have to be intentional about culture from the beginning of your organization's onset. Because when your organization gets to 70 people and then you start addressing culture, the, the horse is out of the gate and it's too hard to rein that back in. And it's too hard for the employees to feel the validation that their company cares about culture at that point. Just like it's too hard for the organization to feel like marketing has a place in revenue if we continue to kind of consider them second class. Mm, yeah. I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, which was including humor and emojis and sort of uh, a fun side of marketing and maybe a part of the brand voice that is a little bit different to a traditionally maybe more stuffy kind of corporate uh, robotic industry, right? Um, how did you manage to pull that off? And what was the thought going into incorporating sort of a, a more light brand and humor into uh, a company like Soft Robotics? So this, I, I designed a campaign 
uh, called the Gripper Guys. So Soft Robotics makes robotic grippers as, as a subset of their business. And grippers are like these little things that go on the end of robots and they are in charge of picking stuff up and putting it down, basically. And uh, we at Soft Robotics had and and still have an incredible sales engineering team. They're called applications engineers, and they work with customers every single day to do proof of concepts uh, for them in order to help them validate uh, their use case, right? So someone will call in and say, I need to pick up ice cream cones. And our applications engineers will run into the laboratory and film a video of them running ice cream cones and send it back to them. And this has been historical for soft robotics forever, was this notion of showing on video the capability of our technology. And it was a requirement for us as a challenger brand because you got to show it. It's a robot. You got to show it moving for people to understand the value. So we, we had always been using video for a long time because of that. But one of the things that I did was I got that team together and I said, look, I want to run this campaign with you guys where... Uh, we have a campaign that speaks specifically to engineers from other engineers, meaning my applications engineers, that teach them about the value of soft robotics and the way the industry is changing. So we did a couple surveys. We, we talked to a lot of engineers and, and I knew right away that they weren't, it wasn't going to be me. It wasn't going to be like the marketer giving them marketing stuff. Right. It was going to come directly from our engineers using our technology. And it was going to talk about basic stuff. It was going to talk about um, what it means to be food safe in automation. It was going to talk about um, the different ways to put together our tool and our technology. It was going to show them some cool behind the scenes stuff. And it was also going to be funny because the entire point of this campaign, again, is if I can't get their attention, I can't educate them. And these engineers are, uh, you know, ranging from 25 to 50, maybe in age. And we know they're looking at Google. We know they have big problems to solve for. And it just didn't make sense to me that we would think that because the industry is sort of slow to adopt and maybe risk averse, that these people are simultaneously uninterested in levity. Hmm. Like those two things don't correlate for me. And even though the industry had never seen humor show up in any way, I was like, why don't we just test it? And so we developed this campaign where we sent a uh, one of these fun gripper guys videos uh, in their inbox. It was an opt-in only campaign every two weeks. It was a heavy lift for my engineering team, for sure. They were the ones primarily working on these videos. I worked with them on strategy. I designed the email, obviously, and sent it out. But there was something beautiful also about this collaboration between marketing and engineering, where these are the subject matter experts. These are the product experts. And I am the one responsible for sharing that message. Why would we not come together to leverage each other's ability to do so? It was... It was smart and they were excited about it. So by the time that I left Soft Robotics, the campaign had been over a year old. We had sent like 35 or 36 of these videos. The, the entire idea was that it was one to two minutes long. These engineers are busy. They don't have time to read long blog posts. This was going to be like in your face, quick snippet. 
And the emails had like a 45% open rate or something. Mm. We would have people come into the office and recognize the engineers and be like, oh my God, you're the gripper guy from that video. Oh, awesome. Like they commented on it. It was, it was part of our brand. It became part of the way that soft robotics showed up. And, and in that alone, I count that incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. The intent of that campaign was not to drive sales. And I know that that is like going to blow up someone's computer by saying Blast that, but <laughs> the intent of the campaign was to get their attention so that I can educate them because being ignored in the space also doesn't serve sales. So let's give them something uh, that they are interested in engaging with so that they can trust our brand. And a 43% open rate shows me that they liked the content, that it was relevant it, to what I promised them it was going to be, and that it created some brand affinity for soft robotics. People love them. People love coming to the trade shows and talking about the latest video and pointing out the people. It was, it was, as successful a campaign as I, as I could have hoped that it would be. That's awesome. I mean, it's, it feels like one of those sort of, um, not like a once in a lifetime, it might be a little bit, uh, uh, embellished, but you know, it was a stamp. It was a badge of honor. It was, you, you could put your finger on this thing and say, we're proud of this. We ship this. People love it. You get that sort of feedback instantly, right? And you can really see it on people's faces that, uh, it's making a difference whether or not it's sort of tangible on the bottom line or not. Um, and part of the, yeah. I think the, the fascinating part of that story for me is all the internal marketing that went on where you have to get buy-in from the engineers. You have to get buy-in from the organization to do something like this. You have to sort of set and, um, and communicate your vision for what it should look like and why it's important. How did you get that buy-in and communicate that to the, to the team? Yeah, that's a good question. So you know, Soft Robotics, we had always been a really small marketing team. Um, and even when I left, we were a small marketing team. At, at our largest, we had four people and one of them was an intern. So, you know, Soft Robotics has, had always been fairly small. So there was never a ton of red tape to move through. That's one of the beauties mm -hmm. of, of having a startup. And, you know, for better or for worse, as the senior manager, I had a lot of autonomy on what our strategy was going to look like. And because I was employee number 10, I also had a lot of trust from my colleagues and peers that I was best served to understand what was going to what was going to resonate with this audience. It was also fairly low risk. And, and so I wanted to make sure that I presented it in a way that was like, if this if we get hate mail for this, this is easy to turn off. Right. This is just like a, this is like a campaign that didn't work out and we can just throw it in the trash, no harm, no foul. We didn't say anything weird. We didn't come out with any weird claims that we can't take back. It can just be like a little thing that we tried that didn't work out. Um, the fact that it was an opt-in newsletter was a really easy way for me to gauge from literally zero to whatever the subscriber rate ended up being how this was faring from an engagement level, um, word of mouth, you know, people talking about it and sharing it with friends. Um, so I think it, you know, at, at, at some meeting, I, I came in already with my, uh, my, my engineers in tow who had already been on board. In fact, it was probably in some ways harder for them to commit than for my leadership mm -hmm. team. And I, I said, like, we've got this idea. I also think having us side by side 
provided a little bit of uh, safety for leadership and a little bit of trust because they knew that I wasn't going to go off the handle saying stuff that wasn't true. Um, and that I wasn't going to be the face of this. You know, it was it was really going to be the engineers who are the ones actually working with customers. So there's a powerful build there in their relationship and trust on the side of uh, customers as well, which was really important. Mm. So so when I came to my engineers and I was like, I have this idea, I think at first, of course, they, you know, the concern was around, you know, we have a full time job. So like making videos for you is like not our responsibility. Um, they didn't say that they were they were much kinder. Um, but what they what they were asking me for was like clear direction. They were like, we can we will help marketing with whatever marketing needs. But this is not our project. So make sure that you show up in a way that supports and enables us. And so that meant for me that I was I was building out strategy. I was working with the team sometimes as much as like building out formal scripts. Um, and then, you know, we would manage the, the, the distribution of it. As time went on, the engineers really got into it. They started making their own scripts. They mm. wanted a hand in editing because they had some agency and ownership over it, which I really loved because it meant that they were invested and they were excited. Um, and we were all kind of doing this project together. So even sometimes when I would prep the newsletter, I would share it with them first and say like, did I, did I capture your creative artistic vision well in this copy? And they'd be like, yes or no. You know, there was, we were kind of working together on this, which was really great. So, um, all in all, not a ton of uh, pushback uh, while I was there around getting it off the ground, especially once people saw, I think, how well received it was. Yeah. yeah and I think that you'd obviously done a great job of sort of earning that trust beforehand as well. And uh, there was already a lot of um, yeah, trust that was built up right beforehand. Um, yeah. I, one of the other things that struck me about the soft robotics uh story as it evolved was you mentioned how when it first started and when you first joined it was like you guys were creating category you're paving the way there's really you know you have competitors in the incumbents sort of the the old companies who have been around for a long time but you didn't really have anyone who was like shoulder to shoulder to you at least for a couple of years and then you had the competitor the true competitors who were sort of you know this new wave this revolution how did you think about um you know, marketing against the competition, positioning yourself both against the old guys and the new guys um, in such a uh, such a nuanced industry like robotics. This was where I became really grateful that we had developed this inbound methodology early on, because by the time some of these other players came in the space, we were already seen as the thought leader in food automation mm. because we had been writing about it and we had been you know, our CEO at the time was incredibly PR savvy and he, he had done TED Talks and he was all over the news about it. And he was in the World Economic Forum talking about right. it. And there were we were we were kind of all over the map. So by the time they showed up, we did have a level of validation and um, positioning already in the marketplace where we were there first. And um, in a lot of ways, that really served us. Now we were creating this category that was still trying to get people to think differently about the way that automation was supposed to be done, which was really hard. And, you know, as a marketer, in some ways, I became um, irrationally uh, 
angry when competitors came on the market and sort of like picked up the ball mm. when we had done this work. You know, right. it, it we were the ones that came into the space and 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 helped to educate the industry on the new way that even enabled competitors to show up and take place in that market. That is like a silly thing that all, you know, happens with all marketers and all companies. And I should be grateful, you know, competitor, people always say competitors are a sign of flattery, which is great. But I remember having a moment of like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> like, this is our, this is our territory. This is our space. Yeah. So that personally, I just had to kind of get over, which, which I did, but, um, but yeah, that, that thought leadership, um, inbound really served us. The fact that we had something, uh, you know, already developed by the, a lot already developed by the time they came in was huge. And for you, five years is a long time. Like how did your role evolve over time? Yeah. So while I was there, I held like 12 different titles or something, <laughs> not really, but it was, it was a number of them. So I started as the EA and, uh, you know, in my transition of actually moving from EA to marketing, I did a lot of operations work. And this is, this might, might actually make sense from a transition standpoint, but I had a ton of Salesforce experience when I came into Soft Robotics. And um, when I got to Soft Robotics, I kind of took ownership over that CRM platform. So I became their admin. And by doing so, um, got really entrenched in obviously like the dashboards and revenue reports and what are the things that we wanna care about and uh, developing our ICP and thinking about how that shows up for us in our system. And then uh, I helped implement and and get into our very first ever marketing automation platform as the marketer. And so the operations really gave me like a secure kind of basis of like a, like a launch point really for marketing. So I think for a while there, I, I held the term of commercial operations manager as I was kind of straddling the operations side and the marketing side. And then I moved into marketing manager where I was, I was just kind of like running, I was the only marketer, but I was running the department, right? I was, I was doing marketing automation and operations and content um, and partnerships and events, which were still huge for us, big trade shows. Um, and I hired an operations person to help kind of take that off my plate. And then I moved fully into senior marketing manager where I hired a marketing associate. I hired an intern and we were able to really like move with gas a little bit mm. there. We were able to really leverage, um, you know, this powerful inbound strategy that we had been developing and just pump out content really in a big way. Um, which was great. And that was the title that I held when I, when I left was senior marketing manager. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I think it's, it's a sign of, um, uh, flexibility and, um, like being able to take ownership. And when you see someone sort of have a bunch of different roles in the company, cause it means it's like, Oh, here's like something like we need someone to do this. Hey, how about, you know, you, why don't you move up to this? Or, uh, why don't we move you up into a more senior role? Or why don't we sort of move you over here where the, where the business could really use your help? Uh, whereas, you know, sometimes you'll see someone in the same role for a long time, right? And it just kind of shows maybe either that they're like a master at their craft and they just want to do that forever. Um, and they're indispensable on their linchpin um, or that they don't really want to do any other things. And, um, and so I like the, the evolution that, that I saw at the company. I'd love to, to switch gears a little bit. Um, 
So you've been really vocal about creating spaces and opportunities for women to have a place to talk about sort of vulnerable and sensitive topics, uh, including a few projects for you that are kind of near and dear to your heart. Could you walk me through uh, the Lift and the Listen Up initiative and sort of what they are yeah, for and sure. what they involve? Yeah. So um, in I think Lift was created in 2015. Um and I actually, I read an article once a long time ago that was that was basically like, you know, women against women is sort of like the demise of our community. Like if, if, if women can't find a way to build authentic, genuine relationships that empower each other, um, we will not collectively move uh, or progress in any way in our community. And it struck me, personally as an actress, because as an actress, I was raised to be competitive with other women, right? Like my getting a role meant they didn't get that role. And it was, it was in direct competition with each other. And I remember f feeling these weird sense, uh, senses of um, kind of fake friendships throughout, throughout college and graduate school where you're instantly connected because you're spending all this time together. And, um, you know, graduate programs of any kind are like that, certainly, but certainly uh, it's theater programs where, again, they're highly emotional. You know, they're, they pride themselves on extracting vulnerability. And so you're in these kind of vulnerable uh, rehearsal spaces and classrooms with these people, but, but you're, you're actively trying to beat them out for things. And it made it very difficult to create real, honest, friendships with with women particularly. And so I just didn't. Um, and that was hard because then I came out of graduate school and I was like, here I am in Boston. Um, I moved to Boston to go to graduate school. So I don't know anybody here. And I didn't make any girlfriends and it was a mess. And so then in 2015, I um, my husband and I had been married for a couple of years. We were excited to start a family and I had a miscarriage. And um, I didn't have anyone to talk to. I didn't have a community of people to share that experience with. And while everyone will grieve and experience that, that situation differently, I wanted to talk to people about it. And so I developed this group um, on Facebook uh, called Lift. That was, it's meant to be Lift Up Every Woman. And we started to do these in-person meetings in Boston um, where we came together specifically to talk about the shit that we didn't have space to talk about anywhere else. Um, and it was about messy stuff. It was about relationships and divorce and miscarriages and career aspirations and falling down and celebrations and everything in between. And um, it was most importantly designed to be a space just to honor those kinds of conversations. And they were fairly personal in nature. So then this year I became, uh, I, be, I, I joined the LinkedIn game. I was, I like, LinkedIn has been doing its game for a while. I am new to it. And, and, and in my job search this summer, I got into it. And um, LinkedIn is like such a funny community. You know, I'm, really I'm learning a lot about like the kinds of things that are happening on LinkedIn. Um, but one of the things that I saw right away was 
women uh, like vying for an opportunity to be heard. And without getting into like our, um, you know, the politics of our, of our experience right now and a lot of the social justice things happening, I had a desire to make sure that some of those voices were heard. And uh, so from a business context, I created this initiative designed to lift up the voices of women who are leading our businesses and our communities in these really short, intimate snips that empower them to give actionable, tangible advice for other leaders to implement on a variety of business topics, everything from sales and marketing to culture and workplace environments, harassment, um, parenting during a pandemic, and everything in between. And it's been great. I mean, it's been, it's been a wonderful way to build authentic, real relationships with other women. It's been a wonderful way to make sure that these incredible voices in our community are are being raised up in a way that they really need to be. And it's like, it's it's simultaneously fixing my LinkedIn algorithm in such a nice way. <laughs> I just wanna see more women talking about what's happening for them. And we need more women in leadership. And I think that we know that. We know that companies that have women leaders um, tend to fare better. We certainly know that countries that have had women leaders have fared better during the pandemic. And I think that Part of that work is just making sure that people know where they are and what they have to say. And so I'm trying to do just a small part of, of making that happen. Mm, yeah, that's awesome. And one of the other sort of new projects that you've gotten involved in is uh, your job search was successful and you just started a new role at Demio. Um, could you share a little bit about what your first, you know, I believe it's nine weeks, right? What, what that's been like and yeah. what's it looked like for you? Wow, yes. Demio is an incredible company, um, really small, bootstrapped company, incredibly successful, and just making big moves in the uh, communication space um, in the middle of a pandemic. I moved to a communication platform space in the middle of a pandemic, and it's an incredible thing to watch. I'm like watching history in real time as people are scrambling to figure out how to do their businesses in a virtual capacity. Um, you know, one of the things that struck me the most about Demio during my interview process that has held true and then some in, in my employment is culture. Demio um, is intentional and specific about building a culture that serves their employees and their company um, and their customers. And I say intentional because a lot of companies are talking about culture this year. And a lot of companies are throwing up statements on LinkedIn about the moves that they're making to make their um, company inclusive and safe and um, specific. Demio is, uh, dedicates time to that. They, they actually, um, they have initiatives toward that. You know, they, they, there are specific um, segments of the business dedicated to making sure that that becomes a reality. And that is powerful. Um, and so that's, that's some of what I'm finding, uh, especially in a remote company. Demio's always been remote. They have, they have employees all over the world, which is such a beautiful thing. And um, 
there is a sense of alignment, a shared alignment toward a common goal that I attribute not only to the incredible work that David and Wyatt have done in building this successful business, but also to the culture. There is a trust and there is a, um, an affinity for Demio that brings these employees together with this work ethic of like, oh my God, all I want to do is make the pain points of my ICP better. Like that I hear when I showed up at Demio on my first day, I did like a little um, like survey to all of the employees. I'm like, hey, I'm Ashley. It's great to meet you. Like, you know, what do you think? What, what should I be working on? And every single one of them used the language ICP. I'm like, well, how do you even know ICP? You're like an engineer, you know? I mean, even this was, it really spoke to the, the, the language that's coming down from leadership about why we're here doing what we're doing. And so I just feel like I'm like jumping on a, like a train heading in the right direction. And I just want to be, you know, I just want to add to that. I just want to be as impactful there as I can. Um, and I'm so grateful for the incredible work that they have already done in the space. Mm. I know you've, you've just joined pretty recently, but I'm also curious, you know, you sort of alluded it's in the communication space. There's, you know, the a pandemic, the world's going remote. Uh, there's a huge need for something like Demio. Like how has Demio been affected uh, by COVID? Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, this has been a pretty good year for Demio. <laughs> um, How good are we talking? <laughs> people, are, people are searching for, uh, for platforms such as this. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the ways that Demio really stands out is Demio is designed uh, for marketers, right? Um, and Demio is designed to be a simple, easy tool to solve these problems. It, it is not a cumbersome tool. It is not, um, you know, it doesn't, it, it's not, it's not full of friction. It's designed to be clean, easy, and accessible. And that is what people need right now. We are finding people looking for like, I just want it to be easier, especially webinars, especially events, which are nerve-wracking super stressful for marketers um, and and almost impossible feeling for small marketing teams. You know, and coming from a small marketing team who was responsible for all of the content, when the time came for us to start building webinars, I remember thinking, this is insurmountable. Finding a platform, learning how it works, making sure that I know how to actually be on camera and build a script and um, who am I inviting? And then what do I do with these leads after the fact? How do I make sure people show up? That's a, that's a headache. And for a lot of people, it will turn them off to webinars being part of their marketing strategy at all. Demio is dedicated to making sure that people understand the power that live events and webinars can bring to their marketing strategy and how easy it can be to implement. And they do it by uh, creating a tool and a product, obviously, that supports that. But part of my marketing strategy is also what kind of content um, can I build that enables marketers to just live easier lives? That's something that, that we talk about a lot at Demio, which is that we want we're dedicated to making marketers lives easier and happier and that means making webinars seamless yes and that means like making sure the product is easy to use it also means recognizing that um 
Marketers uh, with smaller teams have a different barrier. They have a different boundary and threshold of ease than, than big teams. It also means recognizing that, um, you know, holistically making marketers' lives easier is about more than just marketing, right? It's about recognizing that we're in the middle of a pandemic and marketers are stressed out and um, a lot of them are job searching still. And showing up in a way that talks about wellness and professional development and leadership development as a part of marketing content is making marketers' lives easier and happier. Um, so even just having like a clear direction of how we're going to support with that in mind ha it has been really powerful for me coming, coming in um, and really exciting for me to build to build out content for that and build out a strategy that supports it. Mm, yeah. And I'm curious, uh, so when you, when you first started, you said that you, you sent out a survey to the team members and you're sort of asking around you, what should I do? And you've also been in some interesting scenarios, you know, where you're, uh, jumping from EA to marketer and you're doing things for the first time you're, uh, jumping to a new company and you're learning a whole new industry. Like what, what advice would you give to marketers who are just starting out in a new role, you know, to be able to land on their feet, hit the ground running, um, and make sure that their first couple months are successful? Yeah, great question. So um, the first thing I always say is take time with leadership to understand business goals. So your marketing strategy, or even if you're an individual contributor and you're a little bit far down from strategy, your marketing campaigns, what you're posting on social media, all of that needs to roll up to bigger business goals. And you need to understand how what you're doing serves those goals. And as marketing leaders, you need to make sure that your team is feeling impactful toward those goals. So make sure that there's a clear trickle down of here's what we're driving toward and here's how we're getting there from our department. So that's the first thing is spend time, make sure that those are clear and thought out and that you have clear direction on how your team is gonna support those. And then the second thing is just get your hands dirty. So I ask a lot of questions. Um, I, I like to know what people are thinking. This is part of how I learn about other people is not so much about um, the answer to the to the question, but maybe how they answer the question or what they tend to lean toward when they answer the question. So that is really helpful for me in getting a feel for the people around me um, and their roles and responsibilities, but also do your audit. So get in and understand what are the marketing automation platforms that we're using? How are we using them effectively? What are our strategies so far? What content have we created? You know, one of the things that helped me get up and moving quickly with Demio's brand and voice was just by consuming everything they've ever done before. And then you get a really good idea of the tone that Demio has. And I can I can easier, you know, I can more easily implement that in my writing because I took the time to read through their blog posts and their newsletters previously. Um, and also the third thing apart, you know, along with those two is make sure if it's, if it's um, SaaS in particular, that you really know the product. So take some time to, to get in the product and, and use excuses to, um, 
to get in there. You know, one of the things that I've started doing at Demio is all of my meetings happen on Demio now exclusively. It forces me to use the product. It gives people that I'm meeting with an excuse to use the product as well. And um, I can have the experience as a host and an admin and as an attendee. Um, I can I can play with things a little bit. I can uh, more easily empathize with the pain points uh, that other people are experiencing when they're using our product, if, if those exist. And um, those are the three things that definitely have kept me busy for the last nine weeks and that um, that I would encourage any marketer to do when they start a new position. Yeah, that, that's great. I, and I really love, you know, landing on business goals, uh, understanding how the company thinks, using their product like it doesn't. Um, those are really, really key ingredients that I think a lot of marketers miss sometimes when they feel like they frantically have to, you know, spin something up really quickly or get some quick wins or just start moving on stuff because they, you know, they have an anxiety about, uh, doing work, but you really have to make sure that you're setting Mm -hmm. a strong foundation. Um, and this has been an amazingly fascinating conversation for me. Uh, and before we wrap up, I'd love to be able to take a kind of peek in what's in your swipe file as it were, um, and hear about a couple of examples or campaigns that you think are exceptional. Um, so I was wondering if, you know, if you have a couple that are top of mind, if you could walk me through a few, uh, for you. Yeah. Okay. I have two and they're, they're, I don't know if we would even consider them swipe files, but they are in my swipe file. So that's, those are the ones I'm going to share. So one is there's this blog post, um, on animals.co called the idea farm. And I, this spoke to me in such a big way. And it's such an easy concept that I bet everybody who listens to this is like, oh my God, I've already been doing that. But this, this like spoke to me because this is how I think. And the idea is like, there's one shared document that everyone adds to when they have ideas. And over time, that document becomes fleshed out. It becomes um, pitched and shaped and maybe implemented in, in, in real content or whatever it is, or it doesn't, but it all lives in one place. And what I love about that is I am like a notorious, I have notes everywhere. I have an idea folder that I like open up when I'm feeling creative and I write down my idea and then I close it and it goes somewhere. And what I love about this is this concept of bringing those from one state to a state of fruition and execution and that it's collaborative. There's an opportunity for other people to come in and riff off of that idea or add their own ideas and you can riff off of those. And what an incredible way to like get your thoughts out of your head and into the world in like the structure and boundary world that I love on like a one page document. So that's one, totally love it. The other one is like a really easy uh, thank you email that I got from marketing profs, which is like, if you're not on, like everybody should be, subscribe to this stuff anyway. But um, for some reason, their thank you email just like really spoke to me in that I signed up for their newsletter. And and this is something I think about a lot in my marketing that I struggle with. In fact, I'm struggling with it right now is we just launched our own newsletter that I was so excited about. And I'm, I'm in the process of creating the thank you page or the thank you email for it right now. What Marketing Profs does is they, they give me the thank you email and in the email, they actually outline all of the other resources apart from that email that that I might find relevant at Marketing Profs. 
Now, some people would say this is like a no-go. Some people say your thank you email should be just about what they subscribed to, give them the expectations of what to expect and tell them goodbye. But I actually appreciated that marketing profs told me, here's what you're gonna get from this one newsletter. Oh, and by the way, here's our resources over here. Here's our blog over here. It just gave me a, a more holistic look at what they have to offer me, which, which I need. And it also provides, as, as a marketer who's thinking about doing something similar, it provides me the confidence that like, if somehow, which is, it, which is my hope, if people are finding Demio through this newsletter, I wanna make sure that I'm introducing them to the larger Demio world. So if, if I'm assuming that they did not find the newsletter after cruising Demio's site for like an hour and, and now they know everything about us and this was the last resort, I wanna make sure that I'm giving them an opportunity to say, um, by the way, you like this kind of content, you might also like this. Here's just a little bit about us, take it or leave it. I'm not gonna bombard you in this um, subscription with other information than what you've asked for, but just in this one thank you email, I'm gonna make sure that you have what you need. I loved it and I used it. I was like, oh, look at that. And I like clicked on the blog and I was like, oh, they have a little account section. I can go sign up for this. It was incredible. So those are my two that I absolutely loved. I love it. Yeah, those are fantastic examples. Uh, both animals and marketing props are amazing thinkers and uh, very worthy of being modeled after. So my last question for you is um, what I call my Guy Raz question, uh, which is for all the things that you've shared and the audience you've, you've, they've grown, the success that you've had across different organizations and being a marketer, how much would you attribute to luck and then how much would you attribute to your own hard work? Oh my God. Um, a solid 50-50. I really do think like, I, I, I am a firm believer that like you make your own luck to a certain extent, like you, you, you can open your own opportunities. I don't think that that's true for everybody. Um, but I know that a lot of the reason that I had the chance to dive in and learn new things was because someone said, are you interested in this? Mm. Is this something that you, that you want to do? Um, which also helps guide me a little bit. You know, I tend to be someone who's like, like like physics i have like no desire to like you know learn but pretty much everything else i'm like i could see myself i'm not one of those people apart from my desire to, to that i used to want to be whitney houston i'm not one of those people who always knew you know like we talked about who always knew that that this is what i wanted to do and i'm also not convinced this might be blasphemy that i'm always going to be a marketer like there's so there's so many other amazing things in the world to learn and access that just that just fill you up as a human being. That is what you should be driving toward, right? Like the way you should spend the majority of your time is the way that best fills up your cup so that you can fill up your community's cup. Mm. You have to find a way to give back to your community or your customers or your company or whatever it is in a way that really excites you. And that should be what drives where you end up, not like your college major or whatever, unless you are like a doctor, then like, please go to school and like, make sure you're trained before you do that stuff. But otherwise just like be fluid and open to the stuff that comes up and, and just say yes to everything that you can just say yes. 
and figure out how to do it later. I love it. Ashley, it's been um, a fascinating conversation. I appreciate you taking all the time and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Ashley for coming on and sharing everything today. If you can, pop on Twitter and thank Ashley for sharing everything in this episode and let her know what you thought. A few takeaways for me. One, Ashley really embodies how having a self-starter mentality and being willing to take a leap of faith despite your own imposter syndrome can lead to amazing opportunities. You know, going from music theater to executive assistant to marketer and now to marketing leader is no easy feat. Secondly, one of the other things that stuck out, stood out to me was how intentional she was about internal marketing. She's very personal, but also is very intentional about building relationships within the company. It's subtle, but you can tell that she does a great job of building trust, getting buy-in, and collaborating with others. Thirdly, it's also proof that there's no such thing as a boring industry. Again, even in robotics automation, there's opportunity for humor, fun videos, and having a light and welcoming brand. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.